Let's pray before we start. Lord, I just want to thank you for the blessings that you give us. That you know, It's easy to remember the hard times, but the good times that come, that we always just make a mental note or even write down every time that we are blessed. And we just thank you for these things, and we just thank you for the fellowship this morning. We thank you for the worship, and we just pray this morning that the Spirit just moves in our hearts as we just come before you in your word. So Lord, we ask all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. So this morning's study, we are finished with the uh, synthetic study of the 13 epistles of Paul. So I decided we'll take a, Pastor Landon will be back next Sunday. So for the, for the final study, I give this study in one way or another at the jail pretty much every week. It's a practical study where the rubber meets the road, what each individual who is born needs the basic environment that we're all born into, all of these things. At the jail, this study just really just speaks to the inmates um, at a point in which they're at the crossroads in their life and not even at the jail, but everybody has to, is at the crossroads with what we're going to be studying about this morning. 19th century, during the 1800s, there was what's called the holiness movement. And the holiness movement taught that you can reach a state in your life in which you do not sin. It's called perfectionism. Out of this came the theology of post-millennialism, maybe a little bit before then, where the whole world will be evangelized for Christ and then he will return. So during the mid-1800s, this country had a lot, it had, it was on the resting upon the basis of a lot of spiritual revivals. The majority of the country was Christian. The majority of the country were, was in church. Everything looked on the up and up. Here comes the return of Christ. The nation's going through revivals. And we look at it today and we ask what happened. If you're going to witness to somebody back in the 19th century where they were thinking that they could reach perfectionism, that the country was so good, that it was so Christian and so strong. And if you're going to witness to somebody today in the environments that we see ourselves in, in our world, witnessing to somebody in the 18th century, the 19th century would have been much more difficult than witnessing to somebody today. Talking about God, talking about Christ, talking about the need for salvation to somebody who already thinks they have it because of their good works might be the hardest person to reach, might be the most difficult person to reach because they don't see the need. But in today's society, I think we all see the need. It becomes pretty obvious. How did things get like this? The world situation. How did things end up the way that it's ended up? How did we get here? You know, even in, over in Russia, I think it was two weeks ago, I read online that Vladimir Putin said Christians cannot evangelize outside of the church. So we're starting to see a stranglehold on the gospel come. Personal lives, drugs, gang violence, suicide, specifically here in Kakana. How did it get like this? We always, we have this sense of it's wrong. Where do we get that sense that this is wrong? We have a sense that it was better in the past in a lot of areas, not all, but in a lot. How has it gotten like this? So what happened? When God created everything, what condition was it in? Absolutely perfect, right? Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis chapter 1 specifically said, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. How did it become like it is today? We read in Genesis 3, the fall. 
Man's relationship with God was destroyed. Man has now become corrupted by sin. So we can trace all of this back to Genesis chapter 3. And we can trace history of the past 6,000 years of when the culture in the world or Israel or the church or whoever it was was in a compliance with what God had said and the results of it. And Israel and the church and all those same people that I just mentioned, what happened to them when they were not in compliance with it. The key to this is being created in the image of God from all eternity. We think of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're in perfect fellowship with one another. It's hard. It's, we can't think of eternity because we can't grasp it mentally because we're finite, we're limited. But God is eternal. He has always been. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three persons in the Trinity, have been in an eternal relationship with one another. Being created in the image of God, humanity also has the ability for relationships. So our ability to communicate with God, our ability to communicate with each other and with ourselves, all comes from the fact that we're created in the image of God, and God was in perfect fellowship with you know, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We're in perfect fellowship with each other for all eternity. So when we get to the root of the problem, it's all about relationships. Relationships with an individual and God. Relationships with an individual and other people. And relationships with the individual towards himself. Which one of these that I just mentioned needs to be restored first before the others can follow through? Our relationship with God is the number one thing the number one need of humanity. Without the relationship with God, the relationships with our neighbors and the relationships with ourselves will never be right. So we stand back and we scratch our head at this world and we wonder, how did it get like this? And we have all of these options and all of these politicians and all of these political systems and all of the history to show us that the answer is not in man. Humanity by itself cannot solve this problem. It's a relationship between the fallen individual and God. Since the fall, all three of these relationships between God, our neighbor, and ourself have been drastically altered. We are not what we were originally created to be. So as a result, the relationship between man and God has been destroyed. Man naturally wants to be on the throne. Man naturally wants to be in control calling the shots, specifically in the areas of morality. We will not have this God rule over us. It's pretty much the mantra of our day. Man's will and desire replaces how God has designed us to live. So God says this. No, man says we're going to do that. And God says this about that subject, and we think, no, we're going to. It's always the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. Which is why in Matthew 22, 37, if I asked you guys, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. So Jesus, you know, being the second person, being God, truly understood the answer to man's moral dilemma or any dilemma is a restored relationship to God. That's the foundation of all of this. The relationship now between man and other people has also been destroyed. We see this in war, theft, murder, stealing, prostitution, hate, envy. It's just obvious. Man and man, we just don't get along. It's either one nation against another nation or it's one state against another state, or it's one county against, you know, or just 
keep breaking it down and all of a sudden it's our next door neighbor against us. We, we, we just have these fractions and we see all of this in every single country. It's not just in the United States, but we see this all over the world. We do not get along with each other. What's the second greatest commandment that Jesus said? She'll love your neighbor as yourself. So it's, the Bible is very clear. It's very open and it's not a difficult concept to understand. It's just we don't like these answers. Humanity by, in its own sinful, rebellious nature doesn't like the fact that God's in control and doesn't like the fact that we're commanded to love one another. So relationship between man and himself. Now the third relationship. Content in all of things. If I was going to ask you, how many of you are completely content right now in what you have? Well, Jana is right now. She's going through a good time. But that's the thing. We go through peaks and valleys in life. And we go, we go through these high times, we're like, great. But how about when we go through those valleys? Are we like, are we great? No. We're, not. we're to be content in all things. Content in whatever God has given us at this moment. The question is, the answers to these worldviews, the answers to these questions of relationships, where do we find the answers? The worldviews of the Bible is one of many great books. You've got the Quran, Bhagavad Gita, all sorts of other scriptures. Where do we find the truth? And the answer lies in recognizing the correct worldview. What we believe, a lot of times it's called doctrine. A lot of people don't like that word, but it's, it's a good word. Doctrine, it matters, because it's the foundation upon which everything we do in life rests. The biblical worldview, the existence of the biblical God, his revelation to us, our sinful nature before him the proper way of interpretation. All of these things consist of the biblical worldview. The two worldviews that we face today are the biblical worldview, and the other one is we're not created. We're just impersonal energy that has evolved over time by random chance. And these are the two worldviews that conflict with one another. We either evolved through impersonal energy plus time plus chance, or we're created by an infinite God. Some people see that they need to mesh the two together where you get theistic evolution. That's just trying to mix oil and water. It just doesn't happen. The proper worldview is where we're looking at. A restored and proper relationship with God. Even though we may have a restored relationship, we need a proper relationship, content in all things. A restored and proper relationship with our neighbor. Not to envy, not to covet, not to get angry with, but to be... Loving, um, what's it say in Hebrews? Um, I had it in my head yesterday. I forgot what it said. Strive for peace with everybody, I think is what it says at the end of Hebrews. Restored and proper relationship with ourselves. Once we have a proper relationship, God and our neighbor, ourselves, naturally who we are, we just start to fire on all cylinders. Everything just starts to come together. No matter the circumstances around us, our heart, our souls, our spirits are content in the Lord. We can be able to go through all of these things. So speaking of this now, humanity's greatest need. Last week we talk, took a study on imputation. And uh, Glenn from, I forget the act, yeah, Ayama, I can never remember that. A world mission, missionary. He does missions down in um, Brazil. Speaks Portuguese. If you were here, you heard him speak Portuguese. He's a pilot. We talked about humanity's greatest need is salvation. Not just in the United States, but worldwide. Remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? The word again in the Greek is anothen. 
It means from above. So born again or born from above. Jesus referred to the need for spiritual birth, a birth from above, spiritual rebirth. We spiritually died in Adam at the fall. What Jesus is saying is we need a spiritual rebirth in Christ, and this is a supernatural event that occurs. An illustration of being born again. Let's turn in our Bibles, if you can uh, find Ezekiel in the Old Testament, chapter 36. Ezekiel gives an excellent illustration. It's actually a prophetic event of what being born again really consists of. If you find Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to be reading verses 30, uh, sorry, 26 and 27. And we get our illustration of born again here. It says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. So we see here in the beginning of verse 26, we're seeing two things. We're seeing we're given a new heart. Meaning the heart of stone is taken out. A heart of stone cannot be molded. A heart of stone cannot be conformed. If you've ever picked up a rock, there's really not much you can do to it unless you have a sledgehammer. But I mean, outside of that, you can't do anything with a rock. Being spiritually dead from the fall, that's the way our heart is. It's hardened. So what he's talking about here is that old heart has to be taken out and the new heart has to be replaced with it. The heart of flesh is put in its place. What's a heart of flesh? A heart of flesh can be conformed to the image of Christ. It can be conformed, it can be molded. Yeah, Ezekiel 36, 26 is where we're reading in 27. It can be conformed, it can be molded. So what we're seeing here is what humanity needs is a heart transplant. The heart of stone taken out the heart of flesh put in. And that's not all. If we take a look at Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe all of my ordinances. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit enables us to live a Christian lifestyle, a biblical lifestyle that our natural sinful nature doesn't want anything to do with. So not only do we get a heart transplant, but we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, equaling a complete restoration from our spiritual separation from God at the fall. So the solution to the problem of humanity is spiritual rebirth. The heart of stone taken out, the heart of flesh put in, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, now our proper relationship with God has been restored. We need a spiritual heart transplant which will take root in our relationships on how we love one another. And it will take root in how we have a relationship with ourselves. But the foundational problem is our spiritual disconnect with God. Turn with me. Jesus illustrates this. Book of John, chapter 7. John 7 will be in verse 37. A practical result of the heart of flesh, 
a practical result of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In John 7, 37. Jesus gets up and he speaks. He says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we're seeing an illustration here of being born again. From the innermost being, we see this in verse 38, will flow rivers of living water. The natural man, the man that's disconnected from God and in hatred to God, cannot have this. He's disconnected from God. We need to be born again. But at that moment that an individual is converted, what we see here is from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. So we see God moving in our lives. We see God moving through our hearts and our souls. And a lot of times we think of this as things that we were not able to do that now we are able to do. But it's interesting to look at this in reverse. And this really speaks home up at the jail. What the Holy Spirit in this new heart does is it now enables us not to do the things that we like to do. It enables us not to do the sinful things that we like to do. See, we're in bondage to sin, so the problem is we love to sin. But with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that heart of flesh coming in, those desires get pulled out. All of a sudden, we have this supernatural ability not to do what causes us to stumble to live a lifestyle that God has prescribed for us to live and to actually love the law. It's one of the interesting things in the Old Testament with the Jews. 613 commandments and those Jews in the Old Testament who were born again loved the law. You read the law and you're like, how detailed and you know, it can become you know, a lot of nuances and they loved it. Why? Well, they had that restored relationship with God. So then whatever God places on our hearts to do, we just love to serve the Lord. This is what being born again is. And in verse 39... It says, he spoke of the Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit indwelling us is the only solution to the problem of humanity. So we have two options. Either we trust in the natural heart of humanity as a whole, without God, so an atheistic worldview, or we trust in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, our restored relationship to God, which then has its effect with our relationship with our neighbor and then has the effect of the relationship with ourselves. I want to illustrate one more. Uh, two books to the right, if you go to the book of Romans, chapter 5. Romans, chapter 5 is a transitional chapter in Romans. And in Romans 5, verse 5, Again, another illustration of being born again. In Romans 5, 5, it says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So this type of love that God commands, this type of love that the Scripture talks about, 
the natural man doesn't have this ability. It has to come through the Holy Spirit. And once we are born again, once we've had that heart transplant, now the Holy Spirit indwelling us, this just naturally flows. Now, it's not like all of a sudden, boom, we're 100%. We'll get into this in a second. But what we're seeing here is the supernatural love of God poured out into our hearts. And a lot of us, and I talk to a lot of people in here who tell me who they were before they were saved and who they are now after they're saved, and we turn around and we look at who we used to be on a continual basis and we're just like, oh my goodness, I just didn't get it. I just didn't see it. It's the spiritual illumination, the Holy Spirit shines in our heart and all of a sudden we can see everything. We can see why we used to do what we do. And now we have this ability not to do those things. And all we want to do is share this with other people because it's such a refreshing restoration that we want to share it to everybody, we, every person we possibly can. So this love is God's supernatural heart, supernatural love that's poured out in our hearts. This is not the type of love that the world portrays. This is not the type of love that you'll see on television. This is not the type of love that you'll read about in textbook in college. John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So this is something completely different. This is something completely from God, completely supernatural, within the biblical worldview, a restored relationship with the Creator. So now shifting gears, moving on to the three areas of our salvation. Our position before God. It's a theological term. It's called justification. Justification is a legal act of God. So it's a legal act. So if we think of when the judge, what's it called, a gavel, right? He, hits the, he made his decision. It's final. This is going to go into practice. This is the way it's going to be. It's a legal act of God, justification, in which our sins are forgiven, Christ's righteousness now belongs to us, we are declared to be righteous in the sight of God. Last week we talked about imputation. Imputation is our sin gets charged to the account of Christ on the cross. And Christ's righteousness gets charged to our account as sinners. So we exchange. Through faith in Christ, we get his righteousness. He takes the sin. It's imputed. It's a legal decision. So now it doesn't matter how many times somebody breaks the law speeding. 55 miles an hour is always the law. How many times we sin doesn't matter anymore. Now we'll get into this because we're declared righteous in the sight of God. This occurs the moment the individual believes. So if we have our timeline in life, we're born here, we die here. Somewhere in the middle we become saved. That's the point. At the very point that we believe is the point when we're justified. It's like one point on the timeline. We're justified at that point. We're in Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been is a past tense. It's something that occurred at the moment we believe. And it continues forward. Justified by faith, we have peace. And this peace is in the present tense in the Greek, which means it's a continual peace. So justified in the past, we have continual peace with Christ Jesus. That's what justification means. Look at Romans chapter 8, three chapters over. Verse 1. Paul makes mention of this again. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus, who who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The term in Christ Jesus, technically it means to be justified before Christ. No condemnation. So this includes all sin. Past, present, future sin. All laid upon the cross. So when God looks down upon us, he sees somebody who's justified in his sight, not because of anything that we've done. It's because of the position in which we stand. We no longer stand in our righteousness or in our sinful. That's been wiped away on the cross. Now we stand in Christ's righteousness, and when God looks down upon us, he sees his blood, Christ's blood, that cleanses us from all sin. Interesting illustration here. Um, if we go, let's just turn here. Hebrews chapter 4. I want to turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, we see illustrated through the book of Hebrews, Jesus being the high priest. The high priest had two functions. To sacrifice and to be the intercessor to God for the people. So he was kind of the in-between. The priest would offer the sacrifice and the priest would be the one who goes to God from the people in the Old Testament Levitical system. Jesus now is our high priest. Not only is he the one who offered the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice, and he is now the intercessor between us and God, Jesus Christ. So in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What should be our attitude then to God? Should we be somebody who is timid? Should we be somebody who is scared? If we really understand our position in Christ, if we really understand that we're truly justified, then we come boldly before the throne of grace. Not out of our own self-ambition, not of our own self-merit, but the fact of what the blood of Jesus Christ can do to cleanse us from all of our sins. We have a direct relationship with God. The spiritual death has now been restored to spiritual rebirth. And now we have that access, that fellowship, one-on-one fellowship with the Lord. So what the Bible says is to boldly come before the throne of grace because we are justified in the sight of God. Yet we still do sin. We're still in this sinful nature. Our position is in Christ. That's justification. The second theological term in the order of salvation here or in the area of salvation, sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? It's our moment-by-moment transformation in Christ. So, we have our timeline in life. Here's our life. We born, we die. We're saved in the middle, like a period on a page. That's the justification. Sanctification is the rest of our life. The rest of our life, on a moment-by-moment basis, being conformed and restored to the image of Christ. Here's the definition. Sanctification, a progressive work of God and man, that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. So the ability not to do the things that we struggle with. Five years as a born-again believer, you look back, you see the transformation that happened in your life. 
Five more years after that, you see how much you've grown. Five more years after that, you spend 15 years as a believer. Boy, that old person, I don't even know who that was anymore. That's the goal. That's how we all want to obtain. But in the process of sanctification, we have to obey the Lord. We have to be in fellowship with the Lord. We have to be in his word. We have to be in fellowship with church. That's how we grow. So just like a flower, if you don't water the flower, if you don't fertilize the grass, it stays stagnant. So our relationship with the Lord and our process of sanctification based upon two things. It's the moment-by-moment relationship with the Lord and it's time. Spiritual maturity takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. But the more we're watering the grass or the more we're watering the plants and the more sunshine they get and the more they grow, the same analogy falls onto our spiritual life as well. The more we're in that constant relationship with the Lord, the stronger we get and the stronger we grow. So justification occurs at a moment's time when we believe. Sanctification is the remainder of our life, the moment-by-moment relationship being conformed to the image of Christ. As a result of the dwelling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the born-again believer now has two options, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is to obey the sinful nature that we all are born with. We still have it. The spirit, through the removal of the heart of stone, the placing in of the heart of flesh, and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are now supernaturally enabled and empowered to live the life that God has prescribed us to live. So, on a moment-by-moment basis, on a daily basis, we're to be continuously checking ourselves, continuously taking every thought captive. Now, this isn't a legalistic type pressure. This isn't the type of pressure where if, you know, sales quota, let's just use that for example, if I don't hit my numbers by the end of the month, I'm in trouble. It's not that type of pressure. It's a, it's, it's a, actually, it's um, more refreshing than that. It's this type of thing that it's not based upon any effort in the sense that I have to maintain my relationship with God or he's going to be mad at me. No, it's just the simple relationship that you have with the Lord. Just same type of simple relationship that we have with our wives or our husbands. We never really think that, oh, I've fallen out of grace. No, you two are just in a continual relationship day by day. Or a brother and a sister. Are you ever really worried that they're ever going to be not, never not going to be your brother or your sister? No, they're always going to be there. But how much time you spend with one another is how much more you grow. And, you know, the same type of thing with the Lord. He's always going to be God. We're all, you know, in that sense. And that relationship of sanctification should be an encouraging, should be enjoying. Just like the Old Testament Jews who just loved to fulfill those 613 commandments. Same type of thing with our relationship with the Lord now under the new covenant. It should just be an enjoying, refreshing sense of peace. One more illustration I want to give this on sanctification. Let's go to Ephesians 4. It will be in verse 22. Yeah, Ephesians 4.22. For the person who has been born again, for the person who has been justified in the sight of God, we now enter the rest of our lives into this process of what's known as sanctification. And in Ephesians 4, verse 22, it says, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man which was created according to God 
in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. See the relationship there. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So if we read that list, I don't know as we were reading that if any old memories came back to the old person of who we were before Christ. But I read this list and I, you know, we, we sit around with other believers and we talk about you know, the old man and the new man. And we notice here in verse 22, it says, Put off. This has to be a daily choice. This has to be a moment-by-moment choice. Because the sinful nature doesn't want to let go. It wants its own. The Holy Spirit is drawing us this way, but our sinful nature can easily take us down the different path. So this is a moment-by-moment basis. This is a moment-by-moment thing. Realizing this, though, that there are believers who are justified and there are believers who are sanctified and who do well for a long time who, after a while, start to slide off track. It's called as a backslidden Christian. And a lot of times, we can really beat ourselves up if there's a time where we go back to the old lifestyle for a while or start to do some of the things that we used to struggle with, we have to remember that being justified in Christ, past, present, and future sins are all removed. That if we get off track, it's just as simple as just confessing your sin, repenting the sin, and then coming back on track. But a lot of time, our pride gets in the way. We think, God, I've let you down. God, I've really messed up. God, you've done all of these good things for me and now look what I do. And we sound like we're being very sincere, but that's pride because we're trying to keep our head above the bar rather than just allowing the grace of God to shine upon us, admitting our wrongs and continue on. If we sit and stumble and worry about where we used to stumble, where we've just stumbled, we'll never grow. We're going to stay stagnant. So we have to let that go. We have to let the grace of God, you know, he's forgiven us from all sins, That cleanses our conscience, and the scripture clearly speaks into this. Cleansing our conscience, so the old things that we used to do or the things that we still struggle with, God forgives those things. And he wants us to move forward, and he wants us to be refreshed and renewed on a moment-by-moment basis. That's the beauty of sanctification. Do you notice in here we saw a couple of things on relationships with our neighbors and with ourselves. But if you look at verse 30 of Ephesians 4, it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. So as we have that new heart and as if we have that indwelling of the Holy Spirit, sin now starts to hurt. The sin that used to be pleasure, that sin that used to be joy and fun and to spend all time doing, now it becomes very distasteful. It becomes very bitter. It doesn't, it's not, doesn't have that enjoyment that it used to have. And in the second part of verse 30, it says, whom you were sealed for, for the day of redemption, which will take us to our third and final point this morning, Glorification. So we had justification, was the period on the page, the moment we believe. Sanctification is the rest of our life. Glorification is for all eternity at the moment we die. The final step of our redemption, simply defined when we die, 
and there's two beliefs on this we hold to the rapture view here, that at the rapture all believers will be reunited with their bodies. Those who have died before us will go up and be reunited. We'll have our glorified body. And we won't read into this now just for the sake of time, but 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10 talks about this restoration, talks about being in our glorified bodies for all of eternity. The sinful nature will be gone. We will no longer sin. We will be in the presence of the Lord forever at this point. So the three facets of our salvation this morning, justification, we're adopted into God's family the moment we believe. Sanctification, growing in Christ, continuously growing in our position that we've been justified in. And glorification is the guarantee of the Holy Spirit as a down payment until the day of redemption. So those are the three facets of our salvation this morning. The key facet is the restoration of our relationship with the Lord. Uh, The worship team has one more song they're going to come up and perform, and we will be finished for this morning.